that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata explains that um, without getting into for the moment the the ultimate um, the ultimate goal that God intended for man number one number two the ultimate way that that would be accomplished through a knowledge of one specific attribute of God Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata makes a very fundamental statement and that statement is <coughs> that God was committed to man understanding God. In other words, God could have created the world in a way that man would be totally baffled as to the connection between God and the world. How did it come about and so on and what's its significance and what does it all mean? But God had a commitment. God had a commitment that he wanted that man should be able to understand him. And therefore, he created the world in a way that the world mirrors aspects of God, tells us things about God. We're going to see later on, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata takes this concept that the world is a mirror of God's conducts. He takes it even further, and he says that the human being is also a mirror of God. In other words, the, the fact that there are many, many different interpretations to what it says at the, in the beginning of Genesis, that man was created in the image of God. There are many different interpretations to what that's supposed to mean. According to some, it means that the same way that God is a creator, man has creative ability. According to others, it means that attributes of God, attributes of God are implanted within man, in particular the attribute to give, the attribute of loving kindness, which is a whole discussion. According to one interpretation, which Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata develops later on in the Sefer, in the book, in the image of God means that man is actually a mirror of God's conducts, which means that if a person would study the body of the human being, the different organs, the different functions of those organs of the human being, each and every one of them would tell me something which is another aspect of God the arm, the eye, the ear, the nose, the mouth, each one in terms of its function and where it is on the body of the human being would be telling me something in terms of God's conducts with the world and the centrality of them or the interrelationship between them. Uh, conceptually, we talk about the eye of man being able to see things. We talk about God being a seer, somebody that's involved in his world. We talk about the ear that hears. This is symbolic of God's uh, um, listening to what's going on in the world or paying attention to prayers of people. And it's not only that it's a question of being symbolic of a conduct of God, but Rav Moshchan Litzata takes it so far as to say that the conduct of God is the origin of that particular part of the body. In other words, because there is a conduct of God to look into his world and to pay attention to what's going on to his world, when that came down into the physical world that came out in the creation of the eye, and because there is a conduct of God paying attention and listening to what's going on in the world, that when it came down into the world, came down in its physical form in the function of an ear. So it's not only that the, the different parts of the body are symbolic of God, but they're actually the end result in a physical sense of the conducts of God. And in that sense, man is truly in the image of God because he's the end result of the con conducts of God. This is, a very, this is a very involved and a very deep concept, which I'm not going to get into terribly deep right now. But the point of, the point of that concept is that there's a commitment 
on God's part to give man educational tools to be able to understand God. In other words, there's a commitment. And that commitment, you don't even have to go so far to be able to get it. You don't have to go to a library to buy the books for it. Man looks at himself in the way he functions and in the different systems within which he's, his, the whole order of his life works and that itself can be a mirror and that can it, itself blend insight into the way that God operates. This is what Rimash Chaim Litzad is saying and I'm using it now only as an example to God's commitment that man should understand. The distinction, now really Rimash Chaim Litzad says uh, that the truth of the matter is that everything in creation mirrors God's conduct. So what's the distinction that man is referred to that he's created in the image of God? What does that mean? Everything is really a mirror of God's conduct. So Ramesh Chaim Sata says that the distinction lies in the following. Everything else in the world mirrors aspects of God, but there is no nothing in this world that in its totality mirrors the totality of God's conduct. In other words, you get a lion, you get a tiger, you get a zebra, you get a bee, you get a fly, you get a, a centipede, you get a scorpion. Each one of them will mirror a particular aspect or aspects of God, but not the totality of God's attributes. The only being that is the totality of God's attributes is the human being. And in that sense, man is crowned with the distinction that he is created in the image of God because man is a full picture of God's attributes. In other words, within the study of total man, one has a study of the total attributes of God as they relate themselves to this world. Okay, So that's why, even though everything is in fact a mirror of God's conducts, but everything in the world is a mirror of particular aspects, but not all of the aspects. The only thing that has the distinction of being the mirror of all of God's aspects is the human being. And that's why man is called the image of God, because he has a full, you know, what we talk about, the, and now I have a full picture, that's essentially what the Salam Kim refers to, a full picture. Now, there are a lot of, um, aside of my having just used this as an example for God's commitment to us learning who He is, there are other uh, ramifications of this concept. There are other implications to this concept. Um, one of the most uh, dramatic uh, ramifications of this concept <coughs> is discussed um, in, in the writings of Rav Moshe Kadivero in which he writes that being that man is in fact a mirror of God's conduct, uh, man is um, obliged to, to try to study the conducts of God in order to really live out life in terms of all of the different parts of his body consistent with the attributes from which they came. In other words, if I'm created in the image of God and I am to mirror the attributes of God, that's how I was constructed, it would seem ridiculous that I'm a physical picture of God, but I'm not an actual picture of God, behaviorally and attitudinally and in, in other ways. You know, the way that the Tomedvaris says this, he says, You're carrying around the stamp of God, the emblem of God, but you're not. You're not in any way, you don't resemble in terms of your commitment, your values, your goals, your behaviors, anything that has anything to do with it. So you have all of the signs of royalty impressed upon your very being. You're a mirror of royalty, 
but your behavior is inconsistent with it. So it comes out that there's a contradiction between who you are in, in terms of just your being, your existing, and what you are. And therefore, the Taimidvara talks uh, very much about this concept of um, learning the attributes of God to emulate them so that in fact you are a true mirror not only in your having being created in the image of God but in your actualizing the potentials of those attributes that are implanted within you. This is a, a very dramatic and there's a very beautiful work that's writ- written around it, the time of Dvaira, the palm tree of Dvaira is a work that's written around us, studying each and every one of the attributes of God and how man really possesses those attributes and can emulate them. And this is all in the commitment of the Tzalem Alekim, living up to who I really am, the image of God that's within me, which is a very, which is a, a very beautiful connection, man's connection to God. It's not an external goal, but it's an accessible goal that's me. This is me. I'm just trying to live up to the picture of who I am. I present a certain picture. I'm presenting a picture of God. Let me live up to it behaviorally as well, value-wise, goal-wise, that it, I, can, I should live up to it. That's, that's, that's the way I was made. But, that's, but I'm not going to get off into that. That's somewhat of a tangent. But this is what Rav Meshachayim Lutzadah says. And now let's start from that point here in the Sefer. Okay, Vaharayel Adavar, okay, and the proof that 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 God is committed to us understanding Him, ma'asebereshis. The proof of this is the creation of the world. Kakasibetayrasi, because if the person learns the Torah, the the biblical account of creation, God says testimony upon Himself that He created the world in in a difference of time in an order of time, the Hevdo Mamaris, and in different commands that God gave out, do this, this should happen, and this should happen, and this should happen, over Seder, and in a particular order, Masharatzabai, that he rewanted it, and V'loi Vasachas, and it wasn't all created at once. It wasn't as if one moment there was no world, and the next moment it's all here, with no time, with no order, with no sequence. God created the world with time, with sequence, with order, and certainly God didn't have to create the world with time, sequence, and order. God could have said, I want it, and it would have all been there. Why didn't God create the world that way? And he didn't create it with one command. This is a proof, by the way, that I, uh, I referred to last week. He could definitely have created it that way. What's the, why didn't he? Being that God didn't do it that way, that is an open invitation to us that God is, so to speak, telling us that He's giving it to us piecemeal and He's creating it in sequence, in order, in time so that we can have an appreciation, that we can have access to understanding how it developed, how it, was, how it came into being. Not necessarily in its entirety, but an appreciation of what was going on. So there was care given in the account of creation so that the account of creation should be accessible to us. Why did it have to be accessible? Let us just know. I, I wanted it to be. I woke up one morning and I said, I want it, and it is, and finished. But the point being that God was creating it in a way to make it accessible to us. And certainly the, 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 the subsequent byproducts of the world and the cause and effects of the world are definitely created in relationships that we can understand. 
Kol HaSugim, all of the different orders, Minim, all the different categories and types, and Pratim, and all of the particulars. Kechol HaSeda HaNishma B'Darka B'Nei And these are all orders that we can comprehend, we can study, we can analyze, and then benefit from. Why? Because God wanted us to have those benefits. This is essentially what Rimei Shechayim Litzat is saying. Now, okay, leaving that and getting back to the central central topic, now Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying, Now let's get back to what we started with. What did we start with? We had started with the fact that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat says that of all of the attributes of God, the one that is the ultimate goal of man's understanding of God is man's, God's uniqueness. This is the statement that he made. And he explained that there are various benefits that come out of uniqueness being the particular one. And I don't want to review the whole thing because I want to cover more ground, but this is the statement that he made. Any one attribute of God, we have limitations in understanding because we can only understand it to the extent that we can function and associate with it. For instance, wisdom. Let's just use that as a quick example. I can only, if I say that God has limitless or boundless wisdom, I have real no grasp of it beyond my own. Anything that's beyond my own wisdom is a total mystery. Somebody tells me it's wisdom, I'll believe it, but I'm not going to be enthralled by it because it's a total enigma to me. I don't understand it at all. So relating to God in any one attribute, being that they are all beyond my, beyond my level of comprehension and association with anything else in this world, have limitation to them. And because they have limitation to them, were I t- to attempt giving a definition of God along any one of the attributes of God, there would automatically be distortion involved because I would only be able to define God to the extent that I can define it myself. In other words, wisdom would be the extent of the wisdom that I can comprehend. Power would be to the extent that I understand it. Compassion would be to the extent that I understand compassion. And then God would be that extent, which would ultimately be a distortion. On the other hand, Rav Moshchayim Litzata says that if we talk about the uniqueness of God, that's a different story. The uniqueness of God is not giving a, a, um, an encompassing, inherent definition of any one attribute of God, but it is merely saying that whatever the attribute is, God is unique in that attribute. There's nobody that comes close to God in that particular attribute. He's singular. He's unique in that particular attribute. So it's not giving an inherent definition of the wisdom, but it is telling us that it is exclusive. It's unique. That's yichud. Okay, that's the yichud. That's the oneness that we're, that Rav Moshe Chaim Latzat is developing. And we went into a discussion last week that this seemingly doesn't enthrall the human being, and the person doesn't get carried away with uniqueness. And I'm not going to go over that. It's, if it's worthwhile for all of us to know the answer to that question, but I'm not going to go over it just now. Um, but it is the unique, it is the, the ultimate that God wants us to know about Him. And by knowing that, we can come very close to God and want to, so to speak, merge with the essence of God and emulate God and be carried away by everything that God stands for. And in that, we have our ultimate fulfillment in life. This is essentially what Ramesh Chaim Latsata said. There's a little bit more to it, which we're going to see now as he's going to develop it. I shared more with you in the past weeks, but now we're going to see it all in print, black on white. <coughs> okay. Now let's go back to the focus of the discussion. All right. 
when we speak about yichud, when we speak about oneness, what we really mean, kvar shamata, you've already heard from us, that what we really mean to say by that is, shlilas kolzulase, what we mean to say by that is the exclusiveness of that attribute. And that, so then what it means is that when we're talking about uniqueness, uniqueness is something that encompasses every aspect of God. Were I to talk about God's wisdom, that would be talking about one part of God. Would I be talking about God's compassion, I'd be talking about one aspect of God. When I'm talking about uniqueness, another one of the interesting features about talking about uniqueness is that it's an all-encompassing um, aspect of God because in every aspect of God he's unique. So in a certain way it takes in everything. It takes in everything. Okay? Nimsa Zedavaklali, it comes out that when we deal with God in terms of the aspect of unique and exclusive, this is a Davaklali. This is a in English it's defined as general, but the more correct way is to say an all-encompassing definition of God. Why? Because it talks about all of the attributes of God. That they have no limitation. Because now we'll know that whatever we talk about in terms of an attribute of God, we will know that it's an exclusive. In that particular attribute. And there is no other um, existence of the equal and opposite, and there is nothing that can prevent the the um, the manifestation of that attribute of God. There's nothing that stands in the way of it. This is all part of the oneness, that it's exclusive, totally independent, cannot be controlled by any other force in nature. This all goes into the definition of what we say when we say Echad that he is one. It doesn't mean one in the general sense, but it means that in every attribute he's unique and exclusive, and exclusive function and independent function that's all included in this concept of uniqueness. Kemosha Biyarno, like we've explained before. Now, And from this whole introduction, and that really puts us in our place, this is all an introduction. And what we learn from this entire introduction is two things. One of them is One of them is what we already explained before. Number one, that being that what God wants us to comprehend about Him is His uniqueness and His exclusiveness. Therefore, God will create all varieties of things to demonstrate the uniqueness of, of himself. In other words, were God to want us to understand about him more than anything else, let's say his power, so it wouldn't be necessary to give examples in the world of weakness to appreciate power. God will manifest his power and will know his power and finish, and that's the end of it. There's no need to create negatives. There's no need to create the opposites in order to comprehend the positive attribute that you're trying to define. The, the example which we can really grasp a hold of, which we spoke about last week, is that let's say we would be challenged to understand God's wisdom. 
the fact that there would be millions of fools running around in the world and I would point to them and say, well, God's not these fools. That's not going to give me a real comprehension of wisdom. Right? On the other hand, when we're talking about God being exclusive, that allows for the creation of virtually every single possibility of a force and then saying that God reigns above it all. And in that sense, he's unique. He can make wisdom, he can make power, he can make passion, he can make any force. And then it can all be legitimized as an educational tool for man to be in contact with it and to understand no matter what it is, nevertheless, there's something that stands above it all and is unique and exclusive in whatever it is that you're studying. And that, that being the creation of God. Now, what that means is that has the allowance for a lot of the opposites. That has the allowance for a lot of the opposites. If we say, for instance, that Perish, <coughs> let's see it inside, Kishiyirza the Galas Malas Yechuda Yizbarach, when it is the intention of God to reveal or to manifest His uniqueness, because what did we just get finished learning in the paragraph before? That He wants us to know Him, and what does it mean He wants us to know Him? He wants us to know His uniqueness. Now we're just filling in the word. He wants us to know Him. But what does he want above all else that we should know about him, his uniqueness? Therefore, Olavaroso, be your mavur, and in order to explain it very, very clearly, Hatev Kanal, Bechol Chelke Gidre, in all of its facets, this will be revealed, this will be revealed by all of the different circumstances that can show his uniqueness. Any circumstance that can, that can bring up the point of his uniqueness is is valid. Now, the habeis, and the second thing that comes out of this being the ultimate goal, every other aspect of, of, of God is a particular aspect of God. Uniqueness is an all-encompassing aspect because it says something about every attribute. Okay, because the concept of uniqueness is something that looks to encompass in its definition every attribute. As we proved before, because whatever it is about God that we learn, we know that it's limitless. If it's limitless, it means that we're talking about something which is exclusive and unique. In all of them, he is unique. There is nothing that comes close to him. There is no equal and opposite force to balance God out. And there is nothing that prevents it from acting when God wants it to. Okay? Now, Now, now here, Rav Moshe Chaim Lusat is saying on, on, a, on a hashkafa level, on a philosophical level, something which is very, very deep. Right? And we'll just touch it, uh, because it's a very deep thing. What Rav Moshe Chaim Lusat is saying is, there are two advantages to discussing the uniqueness of God more than discussing any attribute of God. Number one, the uniqueness of God allows for many, many different possibilities to exist to demonstrate the exclusiveness of God in all of those things. Number two, it is an all-encompassing definition because it talks about every attribute being exclusive as opposed to talking about a attribute which is only one particular one. Now, 
What Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat is saying is, now we have to understand that being that it's an all-encompassing definition, it is saying that in everything that we know, God, he, the, he, there's a uniqueness of an, and an exclusiveness, and there is nothing that is an equal opposite to, that can prevent it or fight it or hold it back from its existence. And Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat adds here, this last line, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat says, and this all comes back to one thing. It all comes back to the fact that there is only one absolute existence in this world. Now, what do I mean by absolute existence? What I mean by absolute existence is that we don't, nece- we don't have a comprehension of what an absolute existence is. But that's what God is. God is an absolute existence. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that everything else in creation is dependent. Being that it's created... By definition, it's dependent. It means that something was required to bring it into being. There was something that was required. There was a mother and a father and food and oxygen and a whole, a whole group of things that were required in order to bring it into being. It's dependent. And even after the creation, the human being is dependent on many things. He's dependent on things in his environment. He's dependent upon people. The creation of man from the outset is a dependent being on certain levels. On certain levels he's independent, on certain levels he's dependent. If one analyzes for a moment, can you find a being in the world that is totally independent, needs to come on to nobody, came into existence by nobody, is never tied to anybody, is never limited? That's what I mean by absolute existence. And the truth of the matter is that there is nothing else by definition that is absolute in that sense of existence other than God. Right? And that, so Rav Chaim Litzata says, now what does that have to do with our discussion? Rav Chaim Litzata says, that's the crux of the issue of where the exclusiveness of God comes from. In other words, once you're talking about a dependent being, so by definition, you're talking about limitation. By definition, you're not talking about something which is unique and exclusive because it can't be unique and exclusive because by virtue of its dependency it's coming on to something else. So it's not unique and one and exclusive because it needs something else for its existence. So the word one or unique or exclusive is a contradiction to every dependent being. You're not unique. You have to come on to various things in order to be able to stand out that way. You need the contribution of various elements in order to be who you are. And therefore, you can be controlled, you can be limited, you could be put into a boundary. So that's not unique. In that, we're all the same. Some of us are less, more independent, some of us are less. But we all fall into the category of not being absolute. Well, God is an absolute existence. And that, by definition, is the crux. That's the root of the exclusiveness of God. If a person would want to put it into a nutshell, where does the exclusiveness of God come from? Where does it emanate from? It emanates from the fact that God is an absolute existence. And that's what he's referring to here. Okay? The Nisharisha Emes Hazel, let us root this statement of exclusiveness in a deeper statement. Page. What is the. We ran out. I'm sorry. This one you could use, I'm not using it. I'm sorry. We can do a little sharing also. It's a nice Jewish thing. Let us root this statement of exclusiveness 
In the concept of absolute existence. This is where it's tied. It's tied to this issue. Because this is the focal point of everything that we talk about in the perfection of God. And this also includes what we can't talk about. Because if you think for a moment, we can't comprehend what absolute existence is. We can't comprehend it. Because by the fact that we aren't that, and we don't function that way, and we didn't come into being that way, we don't really have a comprehension of what it is. Right? What we try to, when we try to create a picture of God, what we do is we say that God is me a million times. You know, a million times bigger. Or ten million times bigger. But that's really not the point. You know, when you're talking about something that doesn't have limits to, or boundary, it's not a million times something. It's by defi- it's, it's again. It's it's that's that's our imposing our 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 sphere of definition and association and trying to uh, to create a god around our de- ability to associate, and we can't do that. Now, okay, I mean, this really boils down to the question that my four-year-old asked me a couple of months ago, right? and he asked it very eloquently and very simply, as a child can, right? Everything comes from something, my four-year-old says. Where did God come from? So I told him to go ask his rabbi. All right. I, no, but, uh, no, which is an excellent question. And the truth of the matter is we don't have a grasp. We don't have a grasp of that. Uh, we don't have a grasp of yesh Ayan, which is very much tied. The creation ex nihilo is very much tied to this concept as well. Ex nihilo says that there is no absolute existence except God. If we don't believe in ex nihilo, that means things existed. We don't, heavens only knows where they came from, but there's a whole philosophy that the world is kadmine, that the world was just here and didn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end. It just started. It didn't, excuse me, start is not the word. It, it's just here. There is a whole philosophy like that. Shitas hakadmainim, it's called. Uh, and the Maimonides, Maimonides wrote pages about it, and Goin wrote pages about it. Uh, uh, illogical, not logical. We're not going to talk about it, but it's uh, but ex nihilo is a, is a, is a mind-boggling concept. I mean, everything that we know starts from kind of a, some source. You know, it had a root. It started from something: energy, gas, one cell, two cells. It came from something, right? The idea that something came into being is something that we, you know we can't comprehend. Okay. Anyway. Let's go further. And this requires that he is, and there is no one that comes near him. This is another put down, and this is all simple to, to the people of holy belief. And later on, I will discuss with you a lot of practical ramifications that come out of this concept of absolute existence. He's committing himself to coming back to practical ramifications. Meata. Let's go on. Meata. Now you can come and you can comprehend what I was discussing with you before. How is the the attribute of uniqueness different than any other attribute? Shezehu because once we establish that what God wants us to relate to in Him is His uniqueness, 
So that allows for <clears throat> for the conditions that are less than perfect to exist in the world in order that by all of those conditions that are less than perfect that exist in the world we get a better understanding of the, the exclusiveness of God because exclusiveness is saying that whatever exists God is better God is bigger God is greater God is more powerful God is more, all, more encompassing which means that God can create all kinds of situations of things that are absent of qualities of certain qualities and by the creation of all of those things that are absent of qualities number one it gives me a way of, of, of getting uh, closer and closer to, to being enthralled with the exclusiveness of God that's number one number two and this is what he's pointing out once God can create things that are less than perfect less than, than who God is himself and there's the allowance for less than perfection being created in the world then the whole possibility for spiritual challenges and being attracted to things that are less than perfect and struggling and making choices and deciding priorities all comes into being which is, another, which is the process towards the goal that God wanted if you recall last week and two weeks ago we spoke about two concepts we spoke about God's goal for man and the process by which God reaches that goal the goal is his uni- comprehends his uniqueness, which means comprehending God. The, the process is through choice and challenge. Right? Now, by the fact that the goal is uniqueness, now, how do we comprehend uniqueness? By going through and living through all of the situations that are less than unique and coming to realize that this isn't the ultimate and this isn't the most unique and this isn't the most exclusive situation. So you're presented with all of those situations and you slowly, through life and through experience and through challenges and through decision making, you come closer and closer to comprehending more and more the exclusiveness of God. Let's let's give a a down-to-earth example as opposed to something which is very abstract. Right? Um, I'm going. I'm going through life. Uh, I, I was very much bombarded or exposed to a secular way of thinking in terms of values and goals. And then some funny-looking guy tells me that there's something called a tire that has different values and different goals. And he makes the statement. He says, "This was composed by the secularist. This was composed by God." Right? Who do you want to take? And he says, I want to take the secularist. Right? He lives in this world. He's real. He's here. I'm not interested in religion. I'm not interested in all of this stuff. And he, and he chooses that path. It's not as simple as I'm saying it. But let's say by environment, by background, by whatever happens, he chooses that way. Right? Now let's say he enters into that scene. Right? And let's say he slowly becomes disillusioned by some of the values or by the goals or by the changing morals or lack of morals from day to day or whatever it might be that exists in the world right? and he see and he slowly through his own experience and through his own learning process comes to realize that there is something very unique about a lifestyle which the Torah says which was restrictive narrow-minded uh, very very uh, very constraining uh, 
locking me out of a lot of experiences and so on and so forth. And uh, and as the person goes through life and is uh, exposed to a lot of different situations, the person comes to realize, you know, I wasn't really willing to listen to all of this stuff, but as life is proceeding, I'm coming to realize that uh, the author of that good book might have a couple of pointers that are better than the secularist. And in other words, what, what life then becomes through experience, what life becomes is that one becomes, it's, it becomes comparison. It becomes a, a sense of slowly finding <clears throat> that, that maybe the Torah and maybe the mitzvahs and maybe God's advice happens to be um, uh, not superficially the most obviously good advice, but on a deeper level, much more significant for for for, the, for my happiness and for my fulfillment. So 20 years down the line or 30 years down the line, I come around and I say, you know, the secularist was smart and his way of life was very opportunist and exploitive in nature, but after everything's said and done, I didn't get happiness out of it. So who understands happiness the best? Who is the exclusive? Uh, who is the exclusive counselor, guidance counselor of happiness? God. I now, so now, number one, I've learned something in terms of my life, how I should lead my life, but I've also learned something about God, God that God is the exclusive guidance counselor. He's got a lot of wisdom. From that, other things fall out. His compassion, his love, his interest. A lot of things fall, begin to fall into place. And as they fall into place, and I make comparisons with the outside world, I come to realize the exclusiveness of God's function in all of those different areas. But the point being that it allows for a tremendous amount of exposure, experience, challenge, up and down of man to come to grips with that exclusiveness. Okay? And man needs those experiences because by man getting those experiences, man wants to grasp it. Because by trial and error, if man finds that what he thought was good wasn't and what he thought was ridiculous is good, slowly but surely, it happens once, it happens twice, it happens five times, it happens ten times. After a while, what man does is he doesn't wait for the proof on every area. You have to live to 500 to get the proof on every area. But after you see it happening so many times in areas where you would never have believed that it would happen, so then you say, listen... Checkmate, God won. He's exclusive. He's different. He's unique. You know, he's proven in all of the areas that I couldn't have believed that it was meaningful. It's all of a sudden meaningful. I've got to, now I approach it. Listen, he's got a track record now. You know, everything that I swore was utterly ridiculous and antiquated is all of a sudden real and meaningful for me. So maybe all of the other areas also follow the same rule. I, Every person needs a different level of probability. For one person, he needs to be proven a hundred times. For another person, it's 50 times. For another person, it might be 10 or 12 times. Every person has a different level of probability. But sooner or later, when a person becomes convinced that the, that the God that he's dealing with is very unique and very exclusive, so then, I mean, what do I have to patchka around for? If he's unique and he's exclusive and I can get one opinion, which is the overriding opinion, what do I have to go for five opinions for if I know that one is the overriding one? We go for second opinions and third opinions to doctors and to whoever else we're going because who says that this opinion is better than this one? So you try to go by majority, you try to see all of the sides. Right? But life is that kind of a process. 
for many of us, it's that process of getting second opinions and third opinions. Hopefully, we're open to second and third opinions. Sometimes we have barriers not to listen to second and third opinions to begin with. And it takes a long time until we're willing to break down and say, yeah, I'll go for a second opinion. But after that point happens, if, it, if somebody calls you up and says, listen, there are 10 people in this particular field of, of cardiology, but all of the other, everybody agrees that this person is, is miles ahead of all of the other nine people. You're not going to go for ten opinions. You're going to try to get to that the top man. The need for second opinions is when you're not dealing with exclusive opinion. But if you're dealing with exclusive opinion, who needs second opinions? Now, life is such that we're stubborn. We like to go through things and we like to taste all of the different things before we finally we relinquish our experiment and our exposures and we say, okay, I give up. Obviously, God's exclusive. Uh, that's our nature. Right? But exclusiveness does tell, give me uh, a certain sense of confidence and security. Right? And that's what he's pointing to over here. <coughs> now, Ki Amnam, Im if God would only want to t teach us a particular aspect of His perfection, so God would have created beings that are perfect in the manifestation of that particular attribute. Right? And then the need to create things that would be deficient wouldn't exist. Like we've explained before. Because to explain any positive attribute of God, you don't need to create the negative to, to be able to comprehend the positive. And if there would be no deficiencies created, there would be no challenge to man. And there wouldn't be this process of reward. But being that God decided that the ultimate goal should be his uniqueness, so from that came so then that allowed for a lot of deficiency because deficiency would give me the opportunity to learn the exclusiveness of God. Because by seeing the pieces that are missing, one gets a better comprehension of the exclusiveness of that which doesn't miss, is not missing and is not lacking in those aspects. Now, now, ach ein adayin Right. But I want to tell you something. That the end of the Birur Hayichud, what the, when we finally reach the statement, God is unique, God is exclusive, there is no one like Him, there is nobody that can hold Him back. When we get to that on all levels, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, when we're prepared for that on all levels, right, that's still not the end. That's still not the end. What goes after that? You know what this, the end is? That when man becomes enthralled and really comprehends and really connects on all levels with the uniqueness of God, that fills him. And the, the deficiency that, that, that attracted him and dragged him and sucked him in before can't suck him in anymore. 
In other words, the reason that we are uh, that we are attracted to all kinds of different situations is because deep down we don't believe that they're deficient. We tell ourselves that they're full and that they are enjoyable and that they're meaningful and that they they have they have something to contribute to me. A person that deep down knows that the thing is empty and void and really, really knows it, right, is, has made a major step in conquering it. Because once one knows to themselves that it's total emptiness, right, once one knows that it's total emptiness, the attraction of man, just if he has integrity for himself, can't, can't, uh, he can't be dragged into it. Now, if a person doesn't really have a good self-concept, and he doesn't have any sense of uh, of integrity, or you know, you know, he doesn't feel that he deserves to do himself a good turn. Right? So, and I'm nothing, and I and I'm a schmata, and I'm a rag, and I might as well treat myself as a rag and go through life as a rag. Yes. Yeah, so then he can know that something is totally empty and still do it. But if a person has any value for himself, any kind of half-decent self-concept of himself, if a person knows the detriment of being exposed to something that is totally void and how it drags him away from what he can, what he can be, the person's not going to be attracted to it. The negative inclination that's, that is so often successful is because he has the power of persuasion to tell us that it's good. On one level or another, it's good. It's good because God will forgive me. It's good because God's not looking. It's good because it's a mitzvah. With one power, which is above all other powers, and that is koach hadimyon, imagination, illusion, making that, trying to create something when it really isn't. And then he goes to his persuasion. Those are the two powers. The Sepharno in the Chumash, all the way at the beginning with the, the, the story of the negative inclination that came to first man in his first sin, the Sepharno says, He has the ability to make a picture, make a picture of what isn't, but make it very vivid, very colorful, and then once the picture is there, now he has a sale, he has something to sell. Then he goes into his power of persuasion. And most people function that way, right? Most people function that way, um, and that's what he's pointing out. So he says, "You want to know what Birur Hayichud is? Birur Hayichud is not my understanding of God, right? Birur Hayichud, when I come to really be understanding the uniqueness of God, that what that does is that it elevates me out of my attraction." To anything that doesn't have that exclusiveness, that is void or is missing those attributes of exclusiveness. Nothing else attracts me anymore. I'm not going to lower myself to things that are missing those aspects. If I can have the exclusive, and if I can have the exclusive experience, if I can have the unique experience that has everything in it, who's not going to run after that? Right? I think that's what the, the, the ads go that way. Come and experience this, and you'll experience everything, right? right? All-encompassing experience, and that's what Rav Meshchem is pointing out. By understanding this uniqueness, it takes away our attraction 
to be dragged into that which is missing those aspects. Right? And this has a lot to do with one basic concept, which if I'm not mistaken, I spoke about either last week or two weeks ago, and that's the concept that when we talk about the disappearance of the negative inclination in the times of Mashiach, it's not as some people think it is that God gets up and shechts, he slaughters the Yetzirah. That's a lot of nonsense. That's a symbolism. The, the, the negative inclination dis- disappears from the scene because the level of connection with exclusiveness and with wholesomeness is so, is so tight and so strong but in man that he's just not attracted to anything that's less than that. All right? uh, let me give you an example and it's going to sound very extreme and it's going to sound very weird. Okay? But holy people were able to talk in those ways. Right? Um, and this comes up in, in different discussions in Kabbalistic literature and in philosophical works. Right. A major theme, and we've discussed it here in, 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 certain, in certain ways, is that when we talk about reward and we talk about punishment, reward is, in, is essentially inherent, and punishment is essentially inherent to the act which I've done. It's not an external response of God to something that I've done, but it lies in the thing itself. A positive action... A spiritual action builds the human being because I've gone through the experience. A negative action detracts from me because I've done it and the fact that I've done it, there's a chemistry between the the action and myself that makes me deficient now because of the chemistry between the action and the thing. And the statement that I did it to myself is a Jewish concept. And it's true virtually of all spiritual punishment and of spiritual reward as well. Now, so what the commentaries talk about, the commentaries say that if man would only be able to really understand and see the inherent value of a mitzvah or the inherent detriment of an Aveira, a person would be attracted to mitzvahs without any Yetzirah not to do them, without any negative inclination not to do them, and would flee from the, the Aveira like fleeing from a fire. The way that one particular philosopher says it, tell a person, tell a person, in other words, if we would have the clarity of what is wholesome and what is void of that wholesomeness, to do an Avera, to do something which God tells us, don't do it, would in our eyes be like sticking our hands to a fire. You don't want to play with fire, because you know it hurts, it burns you. First degree, second degree, third degree, whatever you want, but it hurts you. You're not going to... Who who struggles with the choice? Well, should I put my hand into the fire or shouldn't I put my hand into the fire? Nobody struggles on that level. And that's what uh, Rav Meshachim Latzat is pointing out over here. Once we understand the exclusiveness of God, in other words, the the wholesomeness in comparison to, to everything else which is empty of that wholesomeness, so we don't want to expose ourselves to that which is less than wholesome because we know the detriment like putting your hand into the fire. Right? So the end of it is that we're not dragged into the, anything that's less than wholesome. We've elevated ourselves out of our, our illusionary attraction to that which is less than wholesome. So what Ramesh Chaim Lutzata started with, and Ramesh Chaim Lutzata made a statement. Do you remember the statement he made? Man has deficiency. 
How can he get out of his deficiency? So Ramosha Chaim Litzata made a very mysterious, almost a cult-like statement, which needs a lot of definition. He said, man has to merge his existence with the existence of God. Do you remember that statement? God is the perfect being. Man has deficiency. The only way out that man has is by trying to bring himself as close to that perfect being called God. Sounds very. It's a, it, it has a peculiar ring to it. It sounds like self-denial and a lot of other things which are very common to all kinds of cultish kinds of systems. Right? But the, the here is where we begin to get a, somewhat of a comprehension. I spoke about it last week also, but here we get even a deeper comprehension of it. What we said last week was that once I understand the exclusiveness of God, and that goes through my uh, my comparison. Everybody wants exclusiveness. Everybody wants the ultimate experience. Nobody wants to waste their time with what they know is missing and is deficient. Once it becomes clear what is what is the wholesome and what is the detrimental. Everybody wants that. And I have a natural urge to want to have as much to do with that exclusive as possible. Here, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is giving it even uh, um, a greater bang. What Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying is that it doesn't become a definition of God. It becomes also a definition of my value and my goal, what I want for myself. So it's not, that, uh, it's not a self-denial of who I am and I'm just disappearing and evaporating into God. I, 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 I have a way of leaving the illusionary temptation and focus on the emptiness that's available. In other words, every human being, and this is a, 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 a very strong concept in a lot of different things in life, that a human being is a mixture of very noble attributes and noble potentials and a very, on the other hand, of possibilities for very e-noble and very animalistic tendencies and behaviors. Let nobody say that I'm a noble human being and there's nothing within me that will ever t- take me into... It's not true. In, in all of our Svarim, our Svarim talk about the Nefesh Bahamas. We have a Nefesh HaLakus, we, we have a Neshama which is a godly chunk, so to speak, and we also have a Nefesh Bahamas. And there's no running away from it. And there's no destroying it. We can't destroy it. It's a part of us. So what is the challenge of man? The challenge of man is not to try to destroy it. The challenge of man is to focus as much as possible on our noble and develop our noble and be, and be engaged in the noble part of who we are and to, and to move away from the e-noble. Right? To focus, to develop it, spend more time with, the, with that which is noble within us. Right? That's, that's, that's where the focus is. I'll give you a couple of down-to-earth examples of what I mean. Crisis, okay? Crisis is one example. Uh, all right, let me explain crisis. Let's say a person has a crisis in their lives or a major tragedy. Right? I've seen many times, and it's, it's, you know, we can explain it very well, that no matter what the tragedy was or what the crisis was, the end result is that the person made for himself a greater crisis and a greater tragedy by the by what he did after the crisis and tragedy. What do I mean by that? Let's say a person lives through a, a tragic event. All right? And by focusing on that tragic event in life, nothing else 
is appreciated anymore. Nothing else is looked upon in a positive way, and he becomes immobilized. And then what essentially happens is that though the tragedy might have destroyed one thing, the attitude as how he looks at this at this deficiency or this thing that came, went out of his life, he then went ahead and proceeded to make from one tragedy ten. Because by looking at this and denying all of the other good things that he had in his life, by denying them, they don't exist anymore. He becomes immobilized, he becomes depressed, or whatever it might be. And now, while the tragedy destroyed one thing, he's destroyed everything else. In the pra- What's the challenge of man? The challenge of man is that though the tragedy is difficult, and it's very understandable that a person settles on tragedy, but there comes a point in time that the person has to lift himself away and not deny the fact that it's a tragedy, it is a tragedy, but I have to focus on the positive. I have to focus on the more wholesome. I have to focus on what I have, not, not just focus on what I don't have. This is one example of it. Um, there, then, uh, another, let me give one more example of this concept of focusing, that man is drawn in both ways, and the question is to try to concentrate. Um, what would be another... Oh, another good example. Let's say um, I have a certain standard. I stand for certain things. I stand for certain principles. I stand for certain values. There are things that I will not do. There are things that I will not say. There are ways that I will not behave. All right? And then I walk into my place of business. Let's say I'm a secretary in an office or whatever, whatever have you. All right? And all of the people around me have a completely different standard. Okay? And they try to drag me into it. Okay, either by talking to me or by making fun of me or whatever have you, whatever the situation is, they try to drag me down. Now, there are two ways of handling this. You can get into the ring and fight like a bunch of cats and dogs, or you can know who you are for yourself and preserve that and not lower yourself to what's happening around you, Okay, either by engaging them or fighting with them or responding to them. And this is a major challenge because many of us walk around with a lot of noble characteristics and we let ourselves get dragged down by what's around us. What's the challenge? There's no, you can't deny that those things aren't there to drag us down, but the challenge is don't focus on those things. Focus on the positive. Focus on the, the part that's noble and try to develop it and look away from the other things. If it's impossible to look away, then you have to change your job. But, but if it's possible, look away. In attitudes towards people, this is also true. You know, there are people that walk around with the attitude that, oh, I, I like this person, and he was my best friend, but I found out one thing about this person, and because I know this thing is no good, the whole person is canceled out. No darn good. Okay? We look at people like that. We judge people like that. We don't judge ourselves that way, even though we ourselves also all have chesrana. It's also the same thing. Focusing on the negative and judging a person by focusing on one or two things about the person and not looking at the totality of the person. Right? Again, it's the same thing. All of life, I just gave you three examples. Crisis, dealing with other human beings and how we relate to other human beings and how we relate to ourselves as well. It all boils down to the same thing. And this is what Ramesh Chaim Latzat is saying over here also. Once we have a better comprehension of the noble, once we have a better comprehension of the full, the complete, the wholesome, the exclusive, right? once we have a real good understanding and picture of that, a man is drawn to that. 
Man is, man is drawn to that. And when it becomes very intense and it becomes very clear to the person, the, the, the inclination to go in the other direction goes away. And this is the elevation of man out of his chesronos. It's not denial. It, it just means being pulled away from something that I had no business being pulled towards. If anything, being pulled towards those deficiencies is a denial of who I really am. It's the exact opposite. Being pulled into the deficiencies is a denial of who I can be. Not looking at those things and trying to concentrate on the noble, that's the process by which I'm accepting myself as opposed to denying who I am to myself. And this is what he's pointing out over here. Now, and when that happens, when that uniqueness of God appears in this world on a global level, then we talk about God having revealed himself ultimately to the benefit of man and to the fulfillment of man. Okay? Now, and what comes out of this is what comes out of this is that though man is created with deficiency, those deficiencies are not permanent deficiencies. They're transient. Because once I have, in other words, once I have a goal, once I have a picture in front of me, once I have access to being able to experience the fuller, the more wholesome, the more exclusive, the more unique, that gives me the motivation to elevate myself. It gives me the energy to motivate myself and elevate myself out of the deficient. I have it in front of me. It's not that I have to create it. I have to understand it. I have to analyze it. I have to make a comparison. I have to be willing to look at it. But there is a, there is a, ma- a magnet that, is, that can pull me. Okay? And therefore, the chesronos asinus, transitory, mum laver al kolpanim a deficiency that by its very nature has to leave. Okay? What, what, is, what does this mean? Let me explain this. But there are many different ways in how this will be removed. Let me explain this and then I'll take questions. Because this, um, this is a concept that's going to come up many times. It's the first time that we're seeing it here. But Rav Meshachayim Lutzata has a concept which is rooted very Kabbalistically. And that concept is the following. <clears throat> if something has deficiency, uh, which means that it is lacking in, in, the, in the total essence of Hashem, it's lacking in the total essence of God, by hook or by crook, sooner or later, it has to go out of existence. It cannot continue in that state. Deficiency by its nature cannot have eternal existence. The only thing that can have eternal existence is that which is wholesome and full. Something which is deficient has inbred in it limitation. The fact that it has limitation inbred into it means that there is at least a slow self-destruct system to the thing. It has to destroy itself because it's deficient. It has to work against itself because it's lacking that which gives it, its, it uh, the necessary vibrancy. Now this is, l- let me give you examples, okay? I'll give you a mushal down in this world instead of in the abstract world and then you'll s- see what I mean. Uh, let's say, 
um, let's get to the circulatory system, okay? If blood flows through a particular organ properly, the organ will be healthy and will be able to function at maximum capacity. If there is a circulatory problem, let's say the arteries are constricting or hardening, or there are different other problems that don't allow a free flow of blood into the particular organ, even though it's, it, it, it's a circulatory problem, but in the end, there will be a malfunction of the organ and even a deterioration of the organ, right? and sometimes even the death of the organ. On a greater level, this can happen in the death of a person or the sickness of a person, depending upon that level. What is, what is that, <coughs> where does that get us? Where that gets us <coughs> is that that is an example in a physical sense that something that is full and that something that is totally nurtured is alive and vibrant. And if it's not totally nurtured, by definition, in the physical world, it will deteriorate and will fall apart and will go out of existence. Everything in the physical world is an educational tool to understand the spiritual world. The world is its elamilakin, as I started tonight. It's an image of God. So if we have an example of the lack of blood or the proper flow of blood into an organ making the productivity of the organ, on a spiritual level, this is also true. On a, on, on a, on a spiritual level, it's, it's, the, it's, it's an identical concept, which means that when we're dealing with chisaron, what does chisaron mean? There isn't a complete contact with God or appreciation of God value or the enrichment of God, uh, of, of the presence of God in that situation. It's like a lack of blood in that particular situation. So eventually the thing has to deteriorate. It can't go on. By definition, it's lacking the nurturing that it needs to exist. On the other hand, if it's a shalem, if it's a, it's, if it's a totally nurtured situation, a good flow of blood is going to that particular thing spiritually, so then the thing is vibrant and alive. So there is a rule, which Ramesh Chaim Litzata says, I just tried to give a physical example to it, that chisarin by its nature cannot go on forever. Because by the fact that it's deficient means that it's lacking. If it's lacking, it means that it has an inbred limit. If it has an inbred limit, by definition, of its lack, it has, to, it has to eventually not function and go out of existence. On the other hand, something which is shalem has eternity to it. And this is what Rav Meshachayim Litzatz is now. This has tremendous ramifications because essentially what, he's, what this means, now what he's saying over here is he's talking about the eventual eradication of evil from the world. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying that the philosophy of the eventual eradication of the evil is not because of some kind of Herculean effort of God. It's not some kind of, um, it's not some kind of atom bomb that's going to be dropped on, on, on the evil, that's going to destroy the evil. Evil is going to eventually have to go out of existence because by its very nature it doesn't have the oxygen for an eternity. It doesn't have it to begin with. It doesn't have it to begin with. How can it go on forever and ever if it's deficient? If something is deficient, it means it's missing something. If, if it can go on and on and on and on, and with, with, the, the, with, what, with what it's missing, it's really not missing it. If it's missing it, it means it has to be missed in some way. If it's missed in some way, that it has to come out 
it, it has to show itself. Sooner or later, it's going to have to show itself. It might go on for a period of time, but sooner or later, so the, the, the deficiency it's going to, is going to show itself. And that's what he's pointing out over here. He's saying that this concept of Gilu Yechudai, right, this, this, uh, which is, gives us a picture of wholesomeness is the Shalim, is the whole, is the full picture of the world, the full picture of life. Anything less than that is Chisarin. Don't ever think that Chisarin is that powerful that it's here forever. It's by its definition, it's transitory. It has to be transitory. Okay? And this, this, has, this has many, many ramifications in, in Jewish beliefs, in the concept of the belief in Moshiach, and, and many, many different things. It, it touches on a lot, a lot of different things. I, I'm, I'm going to stop here. Um, I just wanted to point out, for clarification, it'll make it easier for next week, I just wanted to point out that after everything that we've learned, let's just keep one thing clear, all right? which is not a direct result of what I just said now, but it's important to keep it clear. The goal, the goal is this, to be able to grasp this wholesomeness and ultimately to be drawn to this wholesomeness and drawn out of anything that's less than this wholesomeness. That's the goal of creation. That's what God wants. That's what God wants for man. That's what God wants for the world. That's the goal. The process towards that will require man's exposure to less than the whole and to be able to experience it and compare it and learn from it and be challenged by it. That's the process. The goal is not the challenge. The, The goal is is to, ev- to, to ev- eventually grasp the wholesomeness in a way that you're drawn into it and you don't want anything else. That's the goal. But part of the process towards that goal requires taking the steps on the ladder of experiencing the emptiness or at least being challenged by the emptiness and growing from that challenge. That's the process. Okay? I'll open up for questions now. It's heavy stuff. Right. But it's, if you think about it, it's a very logical. It's a very logical thesis that Rambam Chaim Sat is developing here. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the idea before about merging this, this, that idea. Uh, yeah. Uh, <coughs> I don't know. Somehow that reminds me, of, like, on a much smaller scale, like when Hasidim, a relationship, the relationship between Hasidim and a Rebbe, where they, like, everything revolves. Like they try to, like, I mean, a lot of revolves around the figure of the Rebbe, and they try. To, I mean identify with it or like happy crime or things like that nature. I don't know, is that like on a much smaller scale the same kind of idea? Like I mean they're trying to attach themselves to it's a very something good that's it's a very good comparison. It's a very good comparison and I'll just rephrase it a little bit, but I think it's an excellent comparison. Why? I'll tell you why. Uh, the the way it impresses me the the, the way it impresses me is the following um, the draw to Hasidus, uh, the draw that people have to Hasidus, one of the draws, I wouldn't make an all-encompassing statement, but one of the draws to Hasidus is that a per- the, 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 the layman, uh, the, you know, the person who we all are, the plain people that we all are, okay, uh, are not necessarily uh, on in, in contact with that that world of 
which is closer to wholesomeness, closer to spiritual fulfillment. We're not there. We have a Torah that tells us to get there, but we're not there. We don't live that way. We're very distant from it. We're taking our little steps, our baby steps in that direction, but we're very far away. What can happen is that because of the tremendous distance that we have to travel, that we become dissuaded or we lose, we lose our motivation that we'll ever get there. We don't have the experience within ourselves to a, to a big degree to motivate us to, to, so to speak, keep it up. It's very far away. Uh, a very common refrain that people say is, there's so much to do, there's so much catching up to do, there's so much learning to do, I'll never be able to get there, so why start? It's an impossible feat. Right? In other language, it's so far away that the person just gives up on it. And it's not real anymore. And it doesn't, it's not a motivating thing. Now, the, the, the relationship that the Chassid has with the Rebbe is because the Rebbe does live in that world, or hopefully should if he's an authentic Rebbe, live more in that world, and does exude a certain amount of happiness and a sense of fulfillment with that world, and that nothing else is important except that world. That's the uniqueness. The Rebbe lives in that world. He, he, he davens, he counsels people, he counsels, he's totally involved, he's not torn in 50 million directions, busy with 50 million things. And this at least becomes a picture of the happiness and fulfillment that lies within, within Yiddishkeit. Now, once I see the picture in front of me, at least it gives me some motivation, it gives me a goal. It's, there's a realness to it, because I see that there's somebody that's there and that's alive with it. So it becomes something that's very real and therefore it keeps me going. And I, have a, I know that I'm not there, but the very fact that there's somebody that's a role model or a testimony to the fact that it is real and that when you get there, it, there's happiness and there is that fulfillment there, this is what preserved the chassid. This is what preserved, you know, this is what preserved the chassid. So though he might not have had all of the strength to live like the rabbi, but he knew that that was ultimately where he would like to be, eventually. Do, do, you, do you follow what I'm saying? And that is what kept many Hasidim, uh, so to speak, on track, taking the baby steps that they were able to take. The encouragement, the warmth, the experience, all of those things, but they all boil down to one thing. There's, this is a testimony that there is a there is a there is a, a goal which has happiness and fulfillment in it. That's what the Rebbe constituted for the Chassid, and what others would have uh, understood as the idealization, uh, you know, idolizing a person, is really really not so. It could become the idolizing of a person, but really what it is, it's really the idolizing of of the lifestyle. And the idolizing of the lifestyle, I wouldn't worry about. Because the idolize, we idolize plenty, we have plenty of idols in our lives that we bow down to and that we're attracted to. It's not terrible to be idolized by a, a higher lifestyle. Right? People confuse it, they get confused. Is, this is Avodah this is Zara, it's, it's idolizing a person. It's really not. It's really not. A person that has his head screwed on not right and is not uh, worshiping a human being, but what the but the but is but is is awed of what the human being stands for is idolizing a lifestyle, and that's 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 to the benefit of man. Man needs that.
Man needs that for his growth. He needs, he needs, uh, it's not called idols, it's called role models. And that we do need. And that we do need. More questions, if there are. Not really a question, but just to see if I can rephrase some of uh, what you said on my own level. Okay. The the goal is to uh, know God's oneness, and God gave us the ability to know that. And by oneness, we see that it's it really limitlessness. And any characteristic we can think of God as limitless, and that really is His oneness. And the even though with wisdom, for example, I can only understand to my own level of wisdom, but the more things that I do that are God-like, like um, acts of kindness and whatever, which are attributes of God, the more I develop in that, I keep saying to myself, but you know who God is? God is even more than that. And so I'm supposed to do more of these things to realize that this is what God is. He's even more, no matter how much I develop myself in the attributes of God, God's even more than that. And I come to realize that the greatness of that by doing more and more mitzvahs and attributes of God. Okay. No, that's that's yeah. no, no, it's no, it's it's uh, it's a pre- it's a pretty good it's a pretty good working definition. Um I, I I see in your definition that you're grappling for a little bit more practical application of what we've learned up to this point. So let me try to to add a little bit to what you're saying because you're 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 trying to okay, what do I do now that now that we've discussed this? Uh I think that um, I think that the most primary thing that comes out of this whole discussion is see the thing that I would leave out in terms of the practical is that um, for a person to constantly remind himself that God is limitless is not really practical okay because that's spacing God out of out of out of this world not putting God into an intimate relationship with man. It's important to know that whatever we define about God, it's, it's limited. But that's not the most central thing to focus on the person because it's not going to create any positive motivation. Whatever I am, God's a lot more. That doesn't create anything positive in man. When we talk about uniqueness and oneness, what we're saying is, in, at least in comparison to the world, whatever I can have from the world doesn't come close to what I can have from trying to understand God and living the way God wants me to live. In other words, whatever there is out there isn't as good as what I can have from God, from a relationship with God. Now, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? Developing the positive aspects and staying away from the negative things which drag me into the deficiency is what's going to give me that. In other words, man is set into a, a tug of war, the world tugging him in one way and God tugging him another way. What exclusiveness tells me is, don't be a yo-yo and be, uh, don't be drawn in the direction of that which is exclusive, that which is unique, that which has more wholesomeness, that which has more fullness to it. And all of life is coming to the realization that whatever it is that I'm attracted to, there is more in Hashem. Okay, and if a person can see that as he's living his life and whatever his experiences are and as happy and as entertaining as they are, they still don't come 
to 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 uh, uh, to the wholeness or the fullness of an experience with God, because God is the ultimate or the exclusive experience. That's what helps me slowly move in that direction. The Torah will give me that orientation. The mitzvahs, the do's, the don'ts, the learning of Torah will give me that orientation of being focused to that which is more exclusive. See, we're torn. You know, man is fragmented. You know, we're torn in many, many different directions in, in what we do. We don't have an integrated life. We move, we go hot and cold. All of our lives are hot and cold. The more that we can crystallize the concept of uniqueness and feel the concept of uniqueness, we move, go more in, a, in an aim, in a direction. Do you follow what I'm, And we get less confused and less dragged in opposite or in contradictory directions. And that's the happiness of man. An aim, a direction, not being confused, not being... T- uh, not implanting inconsistency and contradiction in our lives deep down is the happiness of man and that's what man is really looking for let's give her a chance and then we'll go yeah yes I think that the most important thing I mean there are a number of things that you have to consider in answering that question properly but I think the most central one is and this is a major pitfall in quote unquote righteousness you know righteousness has its, its trappings as well it's a major pitfall even no I understand I, I, no let, let me let me just put, let me try to put a focus on it. I touched on it before, but not necessarily in the vein of the question that you're asking. Even if there are people out there that don't see it as clearly as you, okay, are not so drawn to that, and are still patching with uh, different levels of narishkeit, there are a number of things that we have to remind ourselves of. First of all, most of us were also at that point at one time in our lives. And when it came to ourselves, we gave ourselves an awful lot of time to pachka with it. And all of a sudden, when we get out of it, we don't have the same tolerance for others that are still at the place that we were yesterday. This is something that we always have to remind ourselves of. That when we're on a higher level and we look at a person that's obviously still dealing with a lower level, very often we were there too. And we have to to try to develop a tolerance because if we were there and we needed time to get out of it, the fact that I'm out of it doesn't give me the right 
or 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 the you know the attitude of an intolerance to somebody that hasn't seen the light. I saw the light, so I'm intolerant of everybody else. That there's, I'm just saying that th- that's one point that one has to keep in mind. Number two, number two, that that um, that even if that person is not at the same place, every person every person has a lot of um, a lot of good qualities and the relationship that I have with that person should should be bonded in the good qualities focusing on the good qualities of that person uh, pointing them out to yourself pointing them out to that person and relating to that person on those levels of his good qualities do, do you follow what I'm saying? in other words if if you just say, well, he's, you know, they're not, the, they're not at the same place that I am. That's not, the, that's not the ultimate judgment of another person. I'm not judging somebody. I'm talking about people who are judging me. I'm talking about people who are coming back to me and saying, you know, what kind of world are you living in? You know, like you're not living in the same world that we're living in. I mean, I want to, I want to give to people. I want to not make any value judgments. If somebody comes back to me and says. Oh, you had this experience and that experience, the other experience. I don't mean like in terms of prayer or anything like that. I mean like you take a trip, you meet certain people, you, you have certain experiences with them. Other people went to the same place, maybe met similar kinds of people, and certain things happened to you. Well, you have to understand. What happened to you when people look at you like, ah, you know? Well, you have to understand that people don't have the ability, they don't have the kalim, they don't have the vessels to necessarily understand where you are. That's in no way uh, a reflection of there being bad people, and it's, at the same time, it's not a reflection that there's anything anything missing in in what you're trying to do. But you have to realize that not everybody is at the same place that you're at. And just as long as you know that what you're going through and the level that you're at is a positive level, right, if anything, there's a certain sense of, you know, that you feel disappointed that another person can't understand where you're coming from. But it certainly, it, you shouldn't be the one that should be feeling short out at, at of it. I mean, the, uh, do, do you follow what I'm saying? I feel like sometimes I want to give up certain things for social acceptance. In other words, why can't I go to the movies like everybody else, go to a baseball game like everybody else, put on the TV like everybody else, and stop living in a certain kind of world which gives me more pleasure. I don't make any judgments about people who do those things. But the fact that I'm not doing those things is separating me from so many people. It's very lonely out there. It's very frustrating. You can't just, you know, have three friends who are doing what you're doing when most of the world is not doing it. It's really hard. It's not a question of judging anybody, a madrega, anything like that. It's just, you know, this is what I'm doing with my time. This is what you're doing with your time. And as a result, we don't have common interests anymore. You wanted to say something, well, Bernie? That's why it's important to surround yourself with people who are more or less at your in your line of thought at the given time. So you'll you'll have the support group, and you won't necessarily mind what the whole world. I don't think anyone minds what the whole world, as long as one has a, a, a support group oneself. It's true. It's not the pressure of the whole world doing something different. We don't we don't reckon with the entire world. I mean, the fact that uh, t- uh, 10 million Chinese uh, do it one way doesn't bother us. The point is that we have to create for ourselves an environment which is supportive of of our particular level. 
And that's, that is possible. That is possible. It might need certain changes in our lives in terms of where we live or where we work. It might, cre- it might require certain changes. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the whole orientation, you know, the, the, uh, see, the whole orientation, I, it, and this, this is really opens up a whole discussion, but uh, the, the orientation, um, it, you know, is is uh, is very much not not uh, is an orientation of self development and uh, uh, creating a family um, being dedicated to the family uh, it's it's not you know it's our success in life is not measured by by how the world looks at us. It, it's 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 not measured that way. I mean, uh, a Jew's world is, is his people and his family, and and the people that he grows from, and the people that he helps or she helps to grow. That's the world. Uh, uh, the whole world out there is 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 not our yardstick. That's not what's. That's we don't measure ourselves by 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 the world. Now it's true that if we live out there and we don't have that internal so- circle that gives us the support and the and the value system, so then there's you know then there's a void and it's very difficult to live in. But what Bernie is saying is very true. Uh, some people, by their personality, fight on the whole world. You know, they just you know they whistle at the whole world. Who cares? You know, I, I this is what I want. This is what's important to me. Other people have a more expressed need. For a more more support from an environment, if a person is that kind of a person and it's a legitimate need, so then they have to create for themselves uh, a supportive environment. Do, do you know what I'm saying? There are different levels in this. Some people are bothered by it more. Some people are bothered by it less. I think if you would just go ask around in the room, you know, the the aspect of being socially accepted or I'm, if the fact that everybody thinks I'm crazy does that bother me or doesn't it bother me is you know it, it has different levels but to the extent that it is an issue for a person he has to create an environment which is more compatible with his and he has to look for it for him it's his bread and butter it's his oxygen it is for all of us to a certain extent but to some of us it it means more to us and and we have to we have to make more of it but I, I want to caution you one thing: giving up, giving up in order to be able to be measured by the world, by the world, is a horrible sacrifice that will never satisfy. That you'll never satisfy, because you're giving up, you're giving up who you really are for what others would like you to be. That never lands up to be a good deal. It's 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 a heavy price, and the end of the price is that you're in a process of self-denial, and you and then you, you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's from the frying pan into the fire, because then you then you're taking away something which is important to yourself for the social acceptance. So now you have the social acceptance, but you can't live with yourself. The person has to be able to live with themselves. Right. So that I must caution you. That just from a, I'm not talking from a religious standpoint. I'm talking from a logistical standpoint. It won't help. That's not that's not the way out. That's avoiding that's a, that's avoiding the issue. It it needs a supportive environment.
Michael.